This is Can I Laugh on Your Shoulder? Hey, welcome to Can I Laugh on Your Shoulder? I'm Molly Stillman, and this is a podcast where I get to sit down with a different guest each week and have raw, funny, often brutally honest conversations about the things that matter most faith, business, life, and everything in between, where we each learn how to be good stewards of the things we've been entrusted with, even our stories, and how we can use those things to serve others and leave our families, our friendships, and our communities a little better than we found them. I want to create a space where people are unafraid to be themselves and unafraid to ask the questions the rest of us are thinking. My goal is to make you laugh, cry, and laugh till you cry. My guest this week is Jay Hewitt. He is a pastor, author, motivational speaker whose life journey is an awe-inspiring testimony of courage and faith. He was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer at 37, and during that, he found strength through God, embracing his purpose as a storyteller, and he is releasing his memoir, I Am Weak, I Am Strong, in which he shares his extraordinary quest to become an Iron Man while battling cancer. Yes, you heard that right. He completed an Iron Man while battling terminal brain cancer. He embodies resilience and faith in action. He lives in Orange County, California, and he just cherishes his wife and daughter and continues to inspire others with his resilience, his unwavering faith, and empowering messages, reminding us all of the boundless strength within. Let me tell you that... I was greatly impacted by this conversation. Jay is open, he's honest, he is vulnerable, he's transparent, and his story is incredibly powerful. He reminded me that each and every day is a gift, every single day. Tomorrow is not guaranteed, and so how do we live as though today could be our last day on earth? I'm telling you, this conversation is really gonna impact you. So without further ado, on to my chat with Jay Hewitt. Well, I already know this is going to be a really fun time because before we were recording, uh, my guest, Jay, welcome. Uh, Jay said, he was like, I'm an open book. I'll answer any questions. And I was like, well, you are in the right place, sir. So (laughs) welcome to the show, Jay. Thanks, Molly. This is going to be fun. Let's see how it goes. Yes. You know what? That's always like very like encouraging for me too. When I have a guest, that's like, let's see how this goes. You never know. (laughs) Um, well, I am so excited to have you. So, uh, first let's have you kick it off and give us the J one one So who you are, what you do and how you got to where you are today. All right. Well, uh, let's see where to start. Um, back in 1981. No, that's way too far back. Uh, so I'm in Southern California. I'm a pastor and, um, yeah, my life has taken crazy turns in the last few years and it has brought a lot of excitement and a lot of uncertainty. But what I've found is, as God has called me uh, to ministry, the calling stays, but the assignment keeps changing. So I'm just along for the ride, holding on, seeing where God's taking me. But outside of that, what really matters is my family. I've got an eight-year-old daughter who is awesome. Um, She just started wrestling and it is so fun to go to wrestling practice. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. she's, She's got so much energy. She is tall like me and uh she knows how to apply some leverage and it is 
it is so fun to watch her her wrestle. And then my wife is a, a dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at Hope International University. So she's a professor. She teaches Shakespeare, and then she's a dean of the college. So basically, I'm telling you that to let you know, like she's way smarter than me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but she, she's also a lot of fun. So yeah, that's in a nutshell. That's who I am. Oh, and then I've become over the last couple of years, I'm an Ironman battling brain cancer. Mm. And that's kind of where God is focusing my story and using my story to bring some hope and inspiration to others. I love how that was like your afterthought. Like, oh yeah, by the way, the reason I'm here is because I'm an Ironman who has brain cancer. I just love that. That was like, you were like, Oh yeah, by the way, this little tiny tidbit about my life. <laughs> right. Right. And I, I remember early on somebody giving me the advice, Hey, don't let this define you. And oh, I think just good. having them say that to me, it, it really, it really kind of stuck. And so just as it came out this time, it's, it's the afterthought. And at the same time, it is so core to how God is using me right now. Mm, that's good. That's good. All right. Well, Obviously, I want to get to all that. I want to get to your new book, I Am Weak, I Am Strong. But I want to go back a little bit. Um, and so we don't have to go back to 1981. But I am curious, what was your path to faith and ultimately your initial call to ministry? And the reason I asked that is because you said something in your intro that I was like, oh, that's good. And I want to unpack that. Um, but in order to get to that, I want to hear about what that initial calling was and how that stemmed out of your faith journey. So I didn't, I didn't grow up in a religious home. Uh, I might even call it irreligious in mm -hmm. a lot of ways. Um, broken home, uh, dysfunctional home. And, uh, you know, some friends of mine took me to camp when I was in high school, they told me that there was going to be good looking girls there. And that got me there. And they didn't lie. There was plenty of good looking girls. <laughs> uh, but we also had to go to chapel each day. And as we went to chapel, uh, hear about God, hear about the gospel. And then one night, you know, the, the night, uh, where the, the speaker was just so straightforward in the gospel, I was sitting there and I thought, wow, I had no idea. I, you know, I grew up in America and yet I didn't know what the gospel really was. And it was like, I was hearing it for the first time. And uh, they did a call to faith and I didn't know what they were doing. But I went back to my cabin. I was on my bunk and I remember it was 2 a.m., 2 a.m. And I was just thinking about my life and the direction that it was headed. And even more so about my family. I was just trying to make sense of why it wasn't working. And... I still, I still remember the, the prayer, even though I didn't quite know how to pray yet. Um, but the, the prayer was like this. I, I said, God, I need someone I can trust. And if you were willing to give your son for me, I can trust you. Mm. I'm, I'm going to trust you because I don't know how to live my life. I'm messing it up right now. So, so God, take my life and teach me how to live it. And that was the moment I became a Christian. I didn't know I became a Christian at that moment. But then the next day at camp, uh, the speaker uh, followed up on the, the night before. And I realized, oh, I'm a Christian now. And so I went home. I, I told my family about it. And one of my parents was not super excited about that. Um, the other was, was encouraging. But I was the, the high school kid, kind of unusual in the fact that my parents weren't making me go to church, but I went to church every Sunday. I read my Bible every night because there was, the gospel is what I needed. 
Christianity is what I needed. And so, you know, that's, I was 15. And by the time I was 17, if you remember how it goes in high school, by the time you're 17, you're kind of of deciding what direction you're going to go, you know, what college, what, you know, what major, all that kind of stuff. And I started uh, searching my heart and my life and, and asking God. And I just realized, okay, my, my youth pastor, he tells awesome stories and Jesus used stories. And I looked at my life and I was like, oh, wow, I'm a storyteller too. Well, every time we get together with friends, we're always telling stories and God wired me as a storyteller. So I thought, well, if that's what a minister is, then count me in. Mm. Now I learned much more than that as, as it went, as ministry is multifaceted, but even where I'm at now, I, I really feel like, okay, God wired me as a storyteller. He called me into ministry through story, and now he's given me this story to tell. So it's I'm kind of in that spot in my life where I feel like, wow, I get to do what God created me to do. Wow. I love that journey. But one of the things that you said that really stuck out to me was how you said, I, you know, I had this call to ministry. I felt called to ministry. I'm still called to ministry, but the assignment keeps changing. I just personally really connected with that statement because I don't I think it articulated just a lot of things for me. And and I think I've just had a lot of conversations with um, other friends in uh, the ministry world as to what their call their particular calling to ministry looks like. And yeah, it's a wide variety of things. And so I want you to unpack that statement about how you know that you're still called to ministry, but the assignment keeps changing. What does that mean for you? For me, uh, initially, the assignment, which I thought was the entire calling, the assignment was to student ministries. And it made perfect sense in my mind. Jesus got a hold of me, changed my life when I was an adolescent. And in adolescence, that's when you're building your identity. And so if I could then use my experience to help other people, other adolescents build their identity in Jesus, oh, that's a lifelong calling. I want to dedicate my life to that. And so that's, that's where I started out. And then after doing that for a decade or so, um, you know, people start saying things like, oh, you know, you're getting old. And, but I looked around at the veterans of youth ministry and they were doing wonderful ministry as they were getting into their 40s, 50s, 60s, and they became mentors. And I thought high school teachers don't age out. Like this is, you can do great work. So anyway, all that to say, I thought I'm going to be a a lifer in student ministries. And then senior pastor came to me and said, Hey, we need to start um, launching new churches. Uh, I think you're, you're wired for that. Will you help us? And I said, no. And then he came back and he said, will you at least pray about it? I said, yes. And then uh, my wife and I started just really praying together. It became very evident that uh, it was time for for us to step out and to launch a church. And man, was that the right, that was the right thing. And I got a chance to use giftings that were completely different in my life and uh, awaken the entrepreneurial side of, of myself. And it was, I was awakened to new giftings that I didn't know was there. And I remember telling God, in that process, you know, the first five years, having a lot of fun, solving all those good problems. And I said, God, did you make me a starter? And I told him, I said, if you want me to stay with this church and retire here, I'm good with, with giving my life to this. But if you want me to start something and then you have something else for me, another assignment, I'll follow you wherever you lead. 
And uh, not the way I thought it was going to unfold, but after my diagnosis, I went out on medical leave. And when I came back, it was just very evident to myself and leadership that it, it wasn't good for anybody for me to come back in because there's so much uncertainty. So it wasn't good for me, the stress I would have to carry. It uh, wasn't good for my staff or the congregation. And so uh, that's when the assignment changed. And now I'm doing a lot of stuff on, on YouTube for the church. Um, but it also, my senior pastor came to me and said, I want to make sure you have a chance to really develop this story and see how God might want to use the story of your life. And so I've gotten a chance to do that. You know, the, the whole book that, that I wrote, I'm weak, I'm strong. I got to do that on time that wasn't taken away from my family, which is very important to me right now. Yeah. You said something that I was like, oh, that's really interesting. Um, you said that in launching a church that you really awakened an entrepreneurial side, which that's one of those things that a lot of church planters, pastors, leaders, that's not a side of leading, pastoring, and church planting that a lot of people talk about. You kind of think, oh, well, I'm called to ministry or, oh, I'm called to pastor. And like, as long as I'm saying yes to the Holy Spirit, like, it's just gonna, it's just gonna work out. <laughs> um, and so I'd love for you to kind of share what was it about that that awakened your entrepreneurial side? Like, how did that play into it? Yeah, so I, th I think that if you are taking over a church, if you get hired by a church that's been around for 100 years, it takes a certain style of leadership to lead that, that church well. Right. Um, but when you're starting something brand new, you're getting to, one, lay the DNA of that church. And so it takes a certain type of leadership to be able to define, this is who we are. This is what we're going to be about. This is what God's calling us to. And then also build the strategies behind that. Uh, you're not given, hey, this is how our church has always done it. You get a chance to say, okay, this is, this is the best way for us to go about it. If this is who God's calling us to be, this is how uh, we get to go about it. And then just the real practical side of there's always a problem to solve. You're always reevaluating things. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, I just think that's such an interesting perspective because, yeah, I think that there's that a lot of I, I just I am friends with a lot of church planters. I'm involved in a church plant myself. And this is a really common thing that I hear, especially from church planters, is that it requires an entrepreneurial side that and then it almost like becomes this taboo thing to say, well, well, it's not it's a church. It's not a business like. And it's like, what? It's 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 a lot of similar principles. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Because I mean, both my husband and I are self-employed, and so we have this like unique perspective in having started or not. I guess, yeah, you could say started businesses. Um, in addition to just being friends with a lot of starters. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's that's just that's so fascinating. Are there any other thoughts about that? But I didn't want to like veer away to the next thing that I was going to ask you, but I just wasn't sure if you had anything kind of further to follow up on that. No, I mean, you get it, right? It's exciting. It's fast moving. I would always tell my team, we've got to fail fast and innovate often. And that really kind of kept us in sync with following the, the Holy Spirit. And, uh, mm. and I loved it. Fail fast, innovate often. Ooh, love that. Um, okay. Well, I probably stole it from somebody else. Hey, it's fine. You can steal it in the name of Jesus. 
It's fine. I'm I'm giving credit to somebody. I don't know who, but I'm just guessing that probably wasn't mine. And if you are listening and you in a, you invented the phrase fail fast, innovate often, you can email J at <laughs> Um Okay. Well, I want to shift gears a little bit, just just a hair to, you know, address the elephant in the room. And that is, you know, like you said, it doesn't define you, but it was kind of the afterthought in your intro, but the reality of why you're here. And when I first came across your story and um, started to really dig into who you are and um, learn more about you and do my internet sleuthing, um, I was just immediately blown away, encouraged, uh, inspired by your journey and how you are navigating a really complex, challenging thing with such grace and, um, and really using it for the glory of God, even though you don't know what tomorrow brings, you don't know what next month brings. Um, so take us back to when you were 37 and your diagnosis. What, can you kind of tell us the story of how you, what led up to it? You know, was it just kind of like you were going about things and you're just kind of like, I don't feel good. Or I, I don't know. I have no idea how you even go about getting a diagnosis of terminal brain cancer. So, yeah, yeah. So it started where I had a seizure out of nowhere. I'd never had a seizure before. I didn't even know what happened hmm. to me, but I got to the doctor, doctor sent me to the neurologist, blah, 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 blah. Fast forward, I get a call from a neurosurgeon looking at an MRI and, and he says, Hey, I'm looking at your, your scan and you have a tumor right in the center of your brain. It's about the size of a ping pong ball. And I, I remember it was Sunday afternoon around 3 PM, one of those soft afternoons. And I asked him, is it cancerous? And he said, we won't know until we take it out. And so then I said, so I'm having brain surgery. And he said, yeah, if, it, if it's operable, that's going to be the next step. And that, I mean, that just knocks the wind out of you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so at that point, what was the next step? Well, the next step was telling my wife. So mm-hmm. I went upstairs and, and uh, she just bought a, a new outfit and she asked me to, to tie the back for her. And I did. And then I turned her around and I said, honey, uh, that was a, a doctor and uh, I have a, a brain tumor. And again, it, it knocks, the, knocks the wind out of you. And we just kind of collapsed uh, into each other and said, okay, we can, we can face this. If Jesus is with us, we can, we can get through this. So then after that, the next step is finding a qualified surgeon, which uh, was quite a, uh, an adventure and a challenge for us because the tumor was in the center of my brain. And because it was the type of tumor where it wasn't something extra, it was actually brain matter that needed to be removed. That was very, very high risk because um, the center of your brain is kind of what makes you a person. And it's guarded by these really major arteries that could cause a lot of damage on the way in. And so every, every surgeon I went to said almost the exact same phrase. It may be possible, but I'm not the right surgeon for this. And I just got passed on from one surgeon to another to another. And then finally, uh, one surgeon down in Orange County where I'm at, he said, 
it might be possible, but I'm not the right surgeon for this, but I know someone who is. And wow. he explained to me, yeah, right. He, he explained to me that there's probably five surgeons in the world qualified to even attempt this. And one of them's in San Francisco and, and his name was in his phone. And so he called him right then. And the surgeon said, yeah, I'm, I would love to see him. If he can get on a plane to see me tomorrow morning, I think that'd be best. And so my wife and I and my daughter, we flew up to San Francisco to figure out, can this thing actually be removed surgically? And when you got up there, what was, I mean, I, I mean, I, I have a hard time even just wrapping my head around like you're, it's almost like you're in a daze of you just, you get this diagnosis and it just doesn't feel real but then you're just kind of in, I don't even know if crisis mode is the right thing, but maybe it is. And I, you know, so you, you get on a plane and you go meet this, uh, one in a billion doctor (laughs) and, uh, quite literally actually like less than one in a billion, if there's five in the world. Um, and what was that like? And what was ultimately, what did you learn when you went to visit him? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think, you know, you, you mentioned that days, you know, we've, we've got that fight, flight or freeze response. Yeah. And I am definitely 100% fight, which is helpful sometimes, not so much others. But <laughs> in this, how I responded is I went into fight, right? So I'm calling all these different surgeons, networks, uh, fighting my insurance at the time as well. And so it kept me really busy. Things were moving very quickly. So I wasn't able to think about the danger or the what ifs too much. Of course, those things are are in the back of your mind, but I was moving quickly and I felt like, okay, great. We're getting where we need to be. I'm not sure if he'll actually be the one, but at least we're moving forward now. Cause I was feeling like I was getting, you know, pinballed around and going, going nowhere, but felt like we were moving forward, uh, went into, uh, this beautiful hospital and up to his office. It was top floor with the window that looked over golden gate park. And I was like, Ooh, this guy's impressive, but how impressive, how impressive is he? And so he walked in and, um, had a great demeanor and was able to, to teach me stuff. He took out this, uh, this model of the brain and like, unlike any other surgeon was able to do before, he was able to show me exactly what was happening. And he said, Jay, this type of surgery is the type of surgery I specialize in. Wow. And so, uh, yeah, it's the tumors down in the insula the eloquent cortex, whatever. Uh, he explained all that to me and he said, I can do this safely. And I said, okay. And he said, but you're going to need to remain awake for the surgery. And that's when I freaked out. <gasps> what? Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. I, I saw this, um, this movie back in the day is one of the silence of the lambs. Uh, Hannibal. Uh, yeah. I you know, know exactly. I know a hundred percent what I'm talking about, what you're talking about. Uh, Yes. Yeah, so my mind went right to that scene and I just went white and he could tell. And he's like, it'll be okay, Jay. And I, and I asked him, I said, what happens if I have a panic attack after I wake up? Because you know, my head's going to be in a vice. I'm going to be strapped down to a table. And I just think if I wake up and I have a panic attack, that is terrifying to me. And all he said is he just said, it's never happened on my table. And so I had a decision to make. He said, take the weekend and decide what you want to do. As I was doing research, I found very specific medical journals that said, this is the only way that this is possible. And so I went back to him and said, of course, let's, uh, let's do this thing. 
Okay. I have so much help. I have heart palpitations right now listening to this. And I know that you've already been through it and you are here talking to me. So this is like stressing me out posthumously. Is that the right word I'm thinking about? That's not the right word. I don't know. (laughs) That is not at all the right word. I don't know. It's stressing me out way after the fact. So um, I have to ask, okay, I I just need you to tell me what happened because I'm on the edge of my seat right now. I, I cannot... Because I, okay, I've only ever had a couple of surgeries all having to do with pregnancies. And I was not a fan. And I, because I was awake for pretty much all of mm-hmm. them. And I was not a fan. Except, oh, my husband was, though. I realize this is a completely different thing. But it was funny because, especially in my C sections, like at one point, my husband's there. And like I was the very first patient at my local hospital to have what they call it's like a, I don't remember what the phrase was, but it was essentially like where they try to mimic a natural birth with a C section in that, like, I get to hold the baby right after. And they had a clear drape between like where I was laying and where the baby is coming out. And so I was the first patient to get this. And so my husband the whole time is like fascinated. He's like, (laughs) but at one point he stands up and like leans his arm over the drape. And he was like, is that my wife's uterus? Like, just like they, cause they like take your organs out. And I, of course the doctor's like, sir, sir, behind the drape. I look at him. I'm strapped to a table and I was like really sir like I was like really like if you get kicked out of this operating room because you are nosy like so help me anyway I realized that is completely unrelated to brain surgery Jay but here we are um so uh, that's so great clearly I have logistical questions about about this and so how quickly after you said yes okay let's do this was the surgery. And then I just really need to know exactly like how it was. What do you remember? What do you not remember? I don't know. I'm fascinated. Yeah. So the, the surgery I think was three weeks after because the neurosurgeon had to, he already had committed to a lecture tour in Europe. So he had to go take care of that and then naturally. come back. Naturally. naturally. Right. Right. Casual. So, um, so he explained to me, you know, when he was trying to talk me into it, Hey, there's nothing to be afraid of. There's, there's no pain receptors on the brain. That's why you can be awake during this time, this time. And so before, uh, the surgery, a couple of days before they brought me in and ran all these tests did what they call brain mapping. Uh, a lot of scientists talk about this when they're figuring out like where the emotion of sadness comes from, where it lights up, you know, you've heard about those brain mapping right. uh, techniques. So anyway, going through all these tests, they're asking me all these questions. They're mapping out where things are done and get through with that. And then a couple of days later, we have the surgery. And what happens is they wheel you back and they put you to sleep. So you go under, you go under, and that's the, the chance for them to cut the scalp. And then the skull, they kind of just, uh, you know, like a, a jack-o'-lantern, you know, the top of jack, just basically do that to your skull. Just take out, they call it a skull flap. They, they take out that so they can get to the brain. And then once that's out, then they, they wake you up. And so they did that to me. They woke me up. And I remember the first thing I thought was my surgeon is a liar because I felt this, this intense pain. It was like a searing pain. I, I felt like I'd been scalped. Because you have no pain receptors on your brain, but you do on the scalp. Right. Yeah. That's That was my question to refute what that guy had said. He was like, oh, your brain doesn't feel anything. I'm like, well, you have to cut through head to get to it. 
Sorry. So I'm is- screaming out in pain and completely calm. He says, lidocaine. And the attending, one of the attending guys just squirts this cool liquid on my scalp. And then the pain is completely gone. And I didn't feel any pain from that point on. Um, but I, I'm similar to your husband in this. What happened next was really cool because uh, I was supposed to be in what they call a dreamlike state where it's just kind of like, yeah. you might, you most likely don't even remember what's, what's happening, but you can communicate. Um, but because of the adrenaline that I felt from the pain, I was wide awake. Oh my god! And I remember thinking to myself, this is cool. How many people get to have brain surgery and come back with a crystal clear memory of it? And so your, your, your positivity is just inspiring. I am gripped and also horrified and also very fascinated. Yes. Right. So, so I'm getting to watch, you know, there's like a team of like six attendants rushing around. I can't see the surgeon. He's behind me, but I can hear him and I can see on monitors my brain because my brain's been all mapped out. And so I'm getting to watch my brain on a monitor and the surgeon starts to ask me, he pushes an electrode on my brain. And he says, where can you feel that? And I say, my left arm, my right arm, my knee. Um, then he starts quizzing me on, on different things. What's a, this a picture of and on and on. But I remember this one time he goes, can you feel this in your tongue? And I felt like my tongue was swelling up. Now it wasn't, but I felt like it was swelling up. So I'm like, yeah, yeah, I can feel that. And uh, it was, it was such a trip how well they knew the brain and how everything was mapped out. And so this allowed him to go as far as he could in removing sections of brain without causing damage to that specific area. And so, um, yeah, I was awake for four hours for a while. He was asking me questions and then he stopped. And I knew that's when we were going into the danger zone where there was a couple major arteries that he had to kind of fish through to get into the interior of the brain. And, um, it's hard to explain the feeling of being completely out of control and in the hands of someone else that you have no other, no other choice, but to trust them because here you are strapped down to a table head in a vice and you've agreed. And now it's real time. And as I look back on it, it was very strange. I wasn't scared. There, there is a piece and who knows, you know, maybe that's the dreamlike state, maybe because, you know, there are some anesthetics that, uh, that were in my system or maybe, and I like to think of it this way, cause I've experienced it through this whole process. Maybe it's that, uh, that story in the, the Bible of Jesus commanding the sea to be calm mm. and the sea obeying. Maybe Jesus just commanded my soul be calm. I had peace throughout the the surgery, even when I knew, oh, this is it. He's going right to the center. He's going right to the center. He's going right to the the danger zone. I don't know what I'm going to be like when I come out of this thing. I don't know what quality of life I'm going to have. I don't know if I'm going to be able to talk, if I'm going to be able to move, if I'm going to be able to recognize my wife. I don't know. And yet there was calm. And four hours later, I was exhausted. And he said, all right, Jay, I think we're done. We're going to let you go back to sleep. And so I did. And that was the surgery. Wow. I, okay. Yeah. I clearly am not somebody who is well-versed in the medical field because I had very fancy questions throughout that entire thing. Like what in the world happened? Um, so that is incredible. So once you get out of the surgery, 
what is the prognosis? Because were they were they able to remove the entirety of the tumor? Was there some that they just were like, well, this is just now going to live in your brain for the rest of your life? What was the prognosis from there? Yeah. So they took me to the, the recovery room and that's where I woke up and my wife was there. I don't remember anything else but her. And she got right to the point and she said, Jay, they got it all. They're wow. able to remove it all. And that was, I mean, that's huge. Uh, even the neurosurgeon wasn't expecting that. But somehow, some way, he was able to do it. He, he had a very skillful hand, obviously. But I also believe that God's hand was on his hand. Amen. And so in one way, I, I received a miracle. But then they take that tumor and they take it to testing and they test it. And the pathology report then came back sitting in a neuro-oncologist's office, my wife next to me. And she said, we got the pathology report back. And it turns out that that tumor is cancerous. You have cancer. And she went on to say, it's terminal. I want to be as straightforward with you. There's no cure for this type of cancer. We got the tumor, but more tumor will uh, return. And you have a, a very shortened life expectancy. And I need you to, to get ready for that. She did have some optimism. So first, I do I appreciate when doctors are straightforward with you and say, this is, the, this is the medical reality. But then she did say, here's my job. My job is to keep you alive long enough for us to find a cure for this. Hmm. I thought, oh, that's, a, that's a good way to look at it. And it changed my prayer life because I was praying for myself. And then I thought, you know what? I need to start praying for the researching doctors because if we can find a cure for this kind of thing, if they can find a cure guided by the Holy Spirit, uh, then not only is my life saved, but so many people's lives saved. And so that, that helped me uh, to come to, to grips with the medical reality and also to be looking beyond myself and to be praying bigger than just for myself. Wow. So that was how many years ago? Five, six years ago? Something like that. And yeah, so, it's all a blur. It's so all a blur. And so here you are, six, five, six years later, and you're, we're having this conversation. So your story's not over yet. Absolutely not. No, God is, you know, so in Second uh, Corinthians 12, 10, God says, my grace will sustain you. And that's what I've been learning through this whole thing. You know, at first it was like, I felt so different from everyone else because I had this prognosis. I had a diagnosis, a prognosis, kind of a peek into what doctors would expect. And I would look at myself like I was so much different. But then I, I realized no, it's God's grace that sustains our life every day. Mm -hmm. You know, people talk about you're, you're not promised tomorrow, but I've just come to realize, well, it's only by God's grace that we have today. And it's not just me, it's you, it's the people next to us, the people listening right now. It's by God's grace that we have today. So when you get that prognosis, when you get that diagnosis and you hear the words, you have a shortened life expectancy. There is no cure currently for this. And you, but you get that glimmer of hope, which I love that. Was it a nurse who was the messenger? Uh, no, neuro-oncologist. Neuro-oncologist. Okay. So the doctor who comes out and says, but my goal is to keep you alive long enough to find a cure. The, the hope that that brings. Um, and so my mom was uh, a nurse. My 
I have a lot of medical people in my family. I am very clearly not one of them. Okay. I pass out when I like see a little bit of blood. So like that is not my calling <laughs> whatsoever. Um, but I have heard this talked about so often over the years, and that is when a patient is given a difficult diagnosis, the patients that hold on to hope, hold on to positivity, hold on to prayer, hold on to their faith, and that they don't let their prognosis define them, that those patients more often than not fare many times better than others mm. who are just kind of accept their diagnosis, accept their prognosis and kind of turn into Eeyore, which they have like every right to do so. I mean, like, honestly, that's you have every right, Jay, to, to just be like, this sucks. I hate this. This is unfair. You know what I mean? You have every right and no one would fault you for that. Um, but for you to get that, that little glimmer of hope of just, you know what? My goal as a doctor is to keep you alive long enough to find a cure. From there, what were the conversations like between you and your wife to say, all right, we are not going to let this define us. We are going to, you know, carpe diem. We're going to seize every single day. And then, um, so that's kind of the first part of the question. But then the second part is what then ultimately led you to say, you know, what would be a great idea is doing an Ironman. <laughs> how did that, how did those two things kind of progress into each other? Yeah. Well, I don't know if I ever thought that was a great idea. I think I always knew it was a crazy idea, but uh, yeah, things move really quickly. So my wife, Natalie, and I had to go into problem solving mode, logistics mode really quickly. We've got a young daughter that, you know, taken care of. Um, there's different options for treatment, relocating to Houston, all this kind of stuff. So we're, we're problem solving very quickly. But um, I don't know what you would do when you, when you got that diagnosis, when you heard those words, uh, anyone listening, I don't know what you'd do, but I went to Dunkin' Donuts. That's what I did. I went to Dunkin' Donuts, get Naturally. myself some saturated fat, you know, to, to just get some calm and um, went through the drive through got a maple bar and I parked in the, in the parking lot under a tree. And I had, had that moment where I knew that a lot of people in this situation walk away from their faith. I know that has happened time and time again. And it, it was almost if, uh, you know, Jesus, after he, after he prophesied about communion and so many people were leaving him and he looked at his disciples and said, are, are you going to leave too? And they said, where else would we go? I had that moment in the car at Dunkin' Donuts of, do, do I just walk away? Is mm -hmm. it time? You know, why me? How could you? Is it that moment? And my soul quickly went to, where else would I go? Mm. So I prayed and my prayer was not, how could you? My prayer was, what are you doing? What are you doing, God? And it wasn't an angry, what are you doing? I'd already been through that. My dad died very suddenly and that, that made me angry. And I really wrestled with God through that and through the grace of his Holy Spirit it was not easy, but through his grace, he, uh, he opened my inner eyes to, to see his grace. Anyway, that laid a foundation for me. So this time I was able to ask him in a very confused way, what are you doing? And in that moment, the Holy Spirit took me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 and 10. You know, just like Jesus 
told us the Holy Spirit would do. He'd remind us of the teachings of Jesus. And so that's where Paul, the apostle Paul, he's got a thorn in his side. He prayed three times for it to be taken away. And ultimately the spirit of Jesus said, no, but he explained, but my grace is sufficient and my power is perfected in weakness. And then Paul concludes, well, then when I'm weak, that's when I'm strong. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. And I, I'd read that passage plenty of times as a pastor, but this time it was something different. The Holy Spirit was just saying, I'm speaking to you directly as I spoke to the Apostle Paul, I'm, I'm speaking to you. And I just, I heard the Holy Spirit saying to me, and I didn't have my Bible open, but I just heard him say to my heart, my grace is going to be sufficient. My power is going to be demonstrated in your weakness. And then my soul was just convinced, okay, I'm about to go into the weakest moments of my life and I'm going to experience strength like I never had before. I don't know what that means. I'm going to learn what strength looks like, what weakness looks like, how those two are going to interplay together. But I thought, okay, but if your grace is with me, I can do this. So I left Dunkin' Donuts, drove home, got home and I prayed the second prayer. So I prayed first, God, what are you doing? And then when I got home, I prayed this prayer of, how can I join you? Hmm. How can I get in on this? All right, God, if you're going to demonstrate your, your power through my weakness, what can I do? What can I do? And okay, it wasn't as uh, straightforward as what happened in Dunkin' Donuts parking lot where I knew this is the voice of God <laughs> speaking to my heart. This, I would call this an, a nudge of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. I just had this crazy thought of what if I do Iron Man? What if I do Iron Man? And my, my thought process was kind of like, okay, my daughter, my young daughter is going to see me knocked down. She's going to see me weak, but I want her to see me get up. And I want her to see what resilient faith looks like. I want to give her something that's tangible. And I thought, well, what if I do Iron Man? By the way, I'm not a triathlete. This is not a lifelong goal. I just knew of it from in the past. Like this is something I would never be able to do at my peak. But I thought, what if I do this and I do it while I'm going through cancer treatment, like the lowest of the low radiation, chemo, when I'm just not wanting to get out of bed, what if I train for Ironman and I attempt it? And I thought that's a good demonstration for her to hold on to and remember and to come to understand more and more over the years. But it's one thing to have the thought when you're out in front of your house, it's another thing to go in and tell your wife about it. And so I walked <laughs> in and I, and I said, Natalie what do you think? What do you think? And like I said, in the intro, she is a brilliant woman and she's also a wise and spiritually mature woman. And she said, I think you should do it. And that, that I took it back and that we're like, really? Okay. Okay. And then I, I went to my pastor outside of the church that I work at pastors need pastors. And yeah. so I have a pastor that's outside of that. And I took him out to coffee and said, Joe, is this crazy? And he said, no, I think this is good. And so then after that, I decided I'm going to do this. And I told my daughter, her name's Hero. I said, Hero, I'm going to, I'm going to do an Ironman triathlon in your honor, in your name. And she didn't know what that meant. You know what that meant. But the craziest thing is uh, not too long after that, we're cuddling on the couch and Ironman comes on TV. I've never seen it on TV since I was 10 years old. And it comes on TV and I said, oh, Hero, this is Ironman. And I said to her, do you think I can do this? And she said, no. Like only a kid can do, oh you know, just goodness. so brutally honest. She said, no. And I said, all right, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to show you anything's possible with God. And that when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Wow. 
So like you said that you were not, you know, you weren't a triathlete. This was not something that you had had this lifelong goal to do, but then comes the, okay, I'm going to do this. But then also reality sets in and you're now having to swim, bike and run long distances, by the way, for folks that don't know what an actual Ironman is. It is a full marathon. And then it's a what? 62 mile bike ride or 120? 112. Yeah. So what you do is you swim two and yeah, you swim two and a half miles and you get out of the water and then you do 112 on the bike. And then when you're done with that, you know, so you're about 115 miles into it, then you run a marathon. Yeah. I'd never ran a marathon before. I'd never done a half marathon. Like this is not in my wheelhouse. Yeah. So I did one half marathon. I used to be a quasi runner. And I say that very loosely. I did one half marathon. And I remember when I crossed the finish line and I said, I'm never doing that again. That was horrible, miserable. I, there was nothing I liked about that. <laughs> so the idea of not just doing that one time, but twice, and then also a 112 mile bike ride and a two and a half mile swim, that is going to be a hard pass from yours truly. But here you are, you're setting out to do this, which is just incredible. But there's also a reality that you're facing of you're also undergoing cancer treatment, which doesn't make you feel fantastic. So what happened when reality set in? Yeah. So, you know, when, when we set out for this, I didn't know what I was really signing up for, nor did Natalie, nor did my doctors. Cause I, I ran this by them too. And they're like, yeah, exercise is so great. So it helps with the treatment exercise. Good. I think they assumed I was a triathlete and I don't think they really knew what it took to train to do a 140 mile race. Naturally. Um, so the, the first day of radiation and chemotherapy, I ran one mile and then every day was like a, a 35 day treatment. Every, every day I tried to run a little further. And my goal was to have ran 20 miles by the time radiation was done. Chemotherapy would continue and ramp up, but that was my goal. And so I ran a mile and then a little more and a little more. And by the end of treatment, I did 20 miles. And I don't know how I did that other than every day before I would train, I would pray a very simple prayer. God, give me strength. And that's it. Mm. And it was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it was terrible. And yet so good for my soul because I had, I would have thoughts like I can move. I wasn't guaranteed that I'd be able to be able to even move, to be able to run, but I'm able to do this. And so I, I should be doing this. I should allow my body to participate in things like this. Yeah. Well, one of the themes that I know is woven throughout your book is this empowering resilience. It's this continuous theme that you talk about that you really learned throughout this journey of training for this Ironman. And because that will, I mean, I trained again, I trained for a half marathon, which is way less than an Ironman. And it nearly broke me. I mean, I remember the training was hard. And then the actual race itself was, it was, there was a hundred percent humidity. It was 96 degrees. And I thought that I was going to pass out. It was just, people were just passing out left and right on the, the, uh, course. And I just, I remember getting to a point where I was like, I just want to finish. That is my goal. I, I'm, I have no 
pipe dreams of a PR or anything like that. But I mean, I can only, so I can only imagine just in this tiny example of running a half marathon in hundred percent humidity and 96 degree weather, what kind of obstacles you had to go through both physically and mentally and spiritually, because training for something like that is not just physically exhausting. It will break you down. It will wear you down. Um, my old boss, he, he's done, uh, the escape from Alcatraz triathlon iron man, um, where you like swim from, from Alcatraz Island to the, you know, whatever. I don't remember exactly details. And then his daughter, his youngest daughter is a like world champion iron man. She actually just like, I want to say like two or three weeks ago completed her, the world champion half iron man in Finland. So like, she's, she's like a legit, but I've, wow. I've, I've asked him about this, like, cause they've trained together, you know, just how difficult it is. And he's talked about really the most difficult part is like, you get to a point and your body is in shape. Like your body can handle it. It's yes, your body hurts and it's getting your body to, to a place physically to be able to really endure that. But it's really the mental and spiritual piece that can play such a role in this. So I would love for you to share that theme of empowering resilience and how you learned that through both fighting this, you know, terminal diagnosis in addition to pushing through and training for an Ironman. Yeah. Well, I won't unpack the entire book for you right yeah. now, but just a couple key, <laughs> yeah. just a couple key places in here. I really believe one of the most empowering things that I experienced that provided so much for, for my resilience is that, um, when your calling is combined with confidence, that's where you've got a lot of power. So we started off talking about calling and I truly believed that at this point in my life, my calling was to demonstrate resilient faith that leads to a resilient life. And that calling was to do that for my daughter. And there's, there's no, nothing more important important to a parent's heart, right? Than to teach your kids, not only that they can do whatever they put their, their heart to, because that that's true and not true in a lot of ways. But, but if you can, if you can show them, Hey, this is what it looks like when life knocks you down to get back up, to hold on to the hope of Jesus and to get back up and to find a way to stay strong and press on. And that's what I wanted to show her. So I had this strong, strong calling. Now the piece that was missing was the confidence. I'd never done a triathlon. I wasn't even a high school athlete, right? This is, this is not my, my lane. And so I don't have a lot of confidence that I can physically do this. And so the confidence came from the Holy Spirit speaking to me mm. and telling me, this is where my power is demonstrated. My power is demonstrated through weakness. So you're actually positioned better than if you tried to do this, you know, 10 years ago when you're 27 at your physical peak, you're actually better positioned. And so he gave me a calling and then he gave me confidence that it was going to be his power displayed through my weakness. That's where I'd find strength. And so that was the, the most empowering piece to the resilience for me. Mm, that's such a good lesson. Um, and I think, again, just draw, really drives home the point of leaning on the strength of the Holy Spirit and God's power within you. Um, I love that verse in Second Corinthians. It has been a verse that has carried me through a lot of really challenging times. And especially when you know 
the context of that verse and what Paul is talking about in that verse where, you know, he's really, he's outlining, he's like, look, I've been through it. <laughs> like you name it. I've been through it. It's been really hard. Nothing about this journey has been easy, but God's grace is made perfect. Yes. His power is made perfect in my weakness. And something that I was actually having a conversation with somebody this weekend about is we, especially in the, I feel like this is especially in the Western world, the Western church, we love to talk about the Holy Spirit and we love to talk about, you know, God's power But how often do we actually take that seriously? And what do we actually believe that God is capable of? Like, is he actually capable of miracles still to this day? Is he actually capable of doing more than we could ever ask or imagine? Is he like with God, all things are possible. Do we actually believe that? Do our prayers reflect that because I would argue that in the Western church, more often than not, our prayers don't actually reflect that. We pray prayers where we're kind of like, God, I have this desire. I'm praying for this particular situation, but you've got more important things to do, Lord. Like this prayer I'm praying for this healing or this miraculous recovery or this whatever just seems pretty impossible. So like, I'm just going to pray a softball version of it. And so that this conversation I was having with this friend this weekend was just like, you know what? A stirring I've been feeling in my own heart and kind of conviction is, am I praying prayers that actually reflect what I believe? And what I do believe is that God still works miracles. And I do believe that anything is possible with God and that if it is his will, it can be done. Absolutely. Now, the problem is, or maybe that's the problem. The challenge is, is that a lot of times what is our will doesn't necessarily match up with what is God's will. But if we pray bold prayers seeking God's will and praying for miracles and just going, I mean, what, what's the, as it's in a uh, James, right? Where he's like, you don't have, cause you don't ask. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, and I think you're, you're talking about a couple of really key things. Uh, one being, um, is it God's will? Yeah. So one of my key messages is that if I can do it, you can do it because we serve the same God right. and God Amen. delights in demonstrating his prayer through our weakness. And we have the same spirit that's in us, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. We we have that. However, I'm not telling you to go do an Ironman. And just Thank because you. I crossed the finish line <laughs> doesn't mean you'll cross the finish line. Yeah. But because the Holy Spirit called me into that and he gave me this word from the Lord, then I could have confidence to move forward in it. And the those declarative prayers, those powerful, God, do this in my life. Those are so necessary. And I encourage people towards us. And I'm praying those in my life right now for full healing. But I just want to point out in my specific situation, my prayer was more relational mm. and this powerful spiritual prayer. I, I just asked, God, what are you doing? And how can I cooperate? What are you doing? And, and I think that that is a prayer that anybody can pray right now and they'll experience spiritual growth and that will help them abide with the spirit and be led by the spirit. 
If, if you wake up every day and say, God, what are you doing? What are you doing in my life, and my heart? What are you doing around me? And how can I cooperate with the movement that you're stirring in me? How can I cooperate with the spiritual growth that you want to see in my life? And how can I cooperate with the ministry you're doing in the world around me? And that, that's not my idea. I learned that from uh, Blackaby in his workbook, Experiencing God. And so that's something I, I read in college and I've put into practice in my life and have created a foundation of it. And that's what's helped me follow the Holy Spirit and see, yeah, when, when he calls, you can be confident and all things are possible with God. He is able. Yeah, he is able. Amen. I know that we are running out of time and I, um, man, there's just so many other things I wanted to ask you, but I, um, one, I just want to encourage everybody uh, by the time this airs, I believe your book will be out. So everybody go buy it. And if it's, if for some reason I have my dates mixed up and your book is not out yet and y'all should just pre-order it. So, but I am weak. Yes. I am strong uh, by Jay Hewitt. Please go get this book. This is a powerful message. And I know that you are stewarding this message really well and this uh, story really well, but I have to ask here at the end. So like we said, you know, the reality is, is there, there is still a battle that you are fighting, a battle that you're facing. Where are you now? Have the doctors just kind of been like, okay, you're still here. <laughs> That's great. That's awesome. Um, so wh where are you now? Yeah. So I am still tumor free and that is by the grace of God. That's not how they expected it to go. Now they still tell me I've got cancer cells in my brain. Sometime they're going to come together, create new tumor, and let's see what happens after that. But so far, I'm a surprise. I'm a surprise to my doctors. But I've got this awesome neuro oncologist. He's not a believer, but he said, "Jay, there's there's a yet. tale. There's a yet, yes, yet. there's a, a tale of you know point zero zero one percent on both sides. Some people die before expected, and some people far outlive their prognosis." And he said, "Jay, I." From what I'm seeing, I don't see why there's any reason to believe you're not one of those that's going to far outlive this prognosis. Mm -hmm. And so the only way I've been able to move forward, and again, this isn't something that that I coined, I heard it, and at first it seemed cliche, but it, it's actually guided my life, that I need to dream like I'm going to live forever and live like it's my last day. And that's how I keep moving forward in this life of uncertainty with my specific type of cancer. You'll never know if you're cured. There's never a test that they can run to say like, Hey, look, no more cancer. So I have to just keep believing like God has sustained me another day. And I'm going to just dream like I'm going to live forever. And I'm going to live today. Like it's my last. And that's, that's guided me forward very well. Are you going in for regular scans, like ongoing treatment? What, how do you kind of check in regularly with your doctor as you're just kind of, you know, like you said, dreaming like you're going to live forever and living like you're going to die today? Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm never in remission, but it looks like I am in a lot of ways. And so uh, right now I'm not on any treatment except what they call watch and wait. Okay. So it's just watching and waiting until the bad thing happens. But uh, how it works for me is I'm not on any kind of treatment except I go in for MRI scans and meet with my neuro-oncologist. But now I'm to the point, I only go in uh, every six months. So I only go in twice a year, which is really cool. I'm enjoying that. Um, yeah. And I, yeah, other than that, I just keep exercising, keep ministering and keep taking the same amount of energy that I put into Ironman. I'm trying to double that and put it into my family. 
Mm. Praise God. Praise God. All right. Well, then this is the last question I wanted to ask you. And I was, I'm really glad that you said that that phrase has really guided you about um, dreaming as though you'll live forever and <laughs> living as though you'll today's your last day. Because my last question that I wanted to ask you was essentially along those lines. As, as somebody who has in a very practical and very real sense, had to live out the mantra of like seizing the moment and living uh, every day to the fullest. What is your word of wisdom? What is your advice for those of us that do not have the prognosis of terminal brain cancer, of any type of terminal illness? I mean, my dad always, my dad who's about to be, he's 79, he's about to be 80, always has my entire life has used the phrase like, well, I could get hit by a bus tomorrow. Like, you know, he just loves the idea as though people are just getting hit by buses left and right as though like millions of people are dying every day of getting hit by buses. Um, so, you know, the, with living our lives as though we could get hit by a bus tomorrow, what is your real practical wisdom for how to best do that, especially maybe just selfishly. I'm asking this as a parent of kids in elementary school where there are some days where I'm just like, I love you so much. I really need you to go to sleep right now. Like, I just need you to no longer be in my face. Um, like, yes. I love you. I cherish you. Come give me a hug and a kiss. And also please go to your room. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. So that's, that's so interesting that, that you said that. So rewind to earlier in our conversation, like, all of us, our lives are sustained by God's grace Amen. every day. So yeah. I'm I'm no different than you. So we are there together. It's just you haven't got it written out like I have. Yeah. Um, but the piece about your kids just brings up the fact that just like in, in my situation, I had to learn how to tap into strength to the mm. power of the Holy Spirit and allow him to transform my weakness into strength. You need that too. And I still need it because I'm in the same boat as you. It's not easy to live in the moment, to live life to the fullest, because that takes a lot of energy. Right. It takes a lot of energy. So much energy. And so I have to pray for God's strength, just like I did every morning when I'd get up and train. I still have to pray that prayer now. And I would encourage you to do the same thing because there, there's always something, mm -hmm. right? There's always something. Either you're tired, you have a cold, you have a flu, you got bad news from your boss, things aren't working out, whatever. There's always something that even if you decide in the morning, I'm going to live life to the fullest, I'm going to live like it's my last, something comes up and you need strength. We are weak individuals. Amen. Our humanity is fragile, whether it's the years that we have or the, the energy we have for the day. And it's only by it's only by recognizing that we're weak right, and that we need God's, God's power. That's when we can finally be strong. Mm. That is the perfect note to end on. Uh, Jay, this has been fantastic. How can people stay connected with you and um, support you and just follow along on your journey? Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Probably the biggest support right now is to go and get the book. You can either go to IamWeekIamStrong.com. Uh, you can go to Zondervan. You can go to Amazon. You can go to any of those places you get your books, right? Um, but please buy it because I, I truly believe that it's going to bless you. Mm -hmm. God has given me this story for a reason. As you said, uh, he wants me to steward it. And I, I believe I have a blessing for every one of you who's listening. So please get the book. It supports me, but it's going to bless you as well. You can follow along with my story. Uh, Instagram at Jay Hewitt uh, is my easy to find 
Instagram. Awesome. Jay, this has been a pleasure and honor. Um, I'm just so grateful for you and your vulnerability and your honesty, your humor, um, which I, man, I could, we could do a whole podcast on just uh, laughter as the best medicine. Um, so I, I just am really grateful for you and uh, thanks for being here. Uh, thanks so much for the opportunity, Molly. I hope you loved this conversation with Jay. I hope you go pick up his book, I Am Weak, I Am Strong, Building a Resilient Faith for a Resilient Life. Such a good conversation. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your support week in and week out. It really, really does mean the world to me. I'm just so grateful for each and every one of you. Thank you to the team at Third Wheel Media for producing the show. And for you, I would just love if you would take a moment to head on over to whatever podcast listening app you are listening to this on. Would you click that subscribe or follow button and take a moment to leave a review? Because that really does help me to know what you're liking and how this show is impacting you. Now go on and I hope that something this week makes you laugh till you cry. We'll see you next week. Bye.